Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love delights, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. All right. Well, good morning. So good to see you all here this morning. Uh, This morning, not surprisingly, we're going to look at the topic of love. Uh, which is perhaps the most topic, important topic in all of the Bible. And because of the nature of love, I want to open us up in prayer because the topic of God's love is almost so uh, lavish that it's hard for us to believe. So I will pray for us, myself included, as we open our service this morning, uh, that God might, by the power of his Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and be transformed by the beauty of the love of God. Heavenly Father, we are so gracious for the works that you've done in our lives, and paramount upon all of that, you moved into history and you entered into humanity through your son, Jesus Christ, and you gave your life, and you died, and you rose from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins. You did not do this because we were already good people, but because we were not. And you did this because you love us. Help us to understand your love, and then help us to live out of that love as we show it to others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to get right into it. I don't have a particularly long sermon, but I do have some things that I would really like to draw your attention to, and that I would like you to focus on. And, and perhaps because my sermon is a little shorter, perhaps you'll think on the few things I do say instead of get lost in the weeds of all the things I usually say. And so I have three questions that we're going to ask this morning. First, uh, what is God's love like? Second, uh, how do I receive God's love? And third, how do I extend God's love? So I'm going to ask these questions. We're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to go through them. Our main text for this morning is found in Romans chapter 5, and it's three short verses, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Uh, If you're using one of our Bibles, we'd love to offer that to you. And in fact, you can always take one of our Bibles home. It's a gift any week of the the year. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And as we read this passage, have these three questions kind of going around in your mind. What is the love of God like? 
How do I receive it? And how do I extend it? First, let us look at what the Apostle Paul over these 2,000 years ago wrote and preserved so that we might be transformed. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First, what does God's love look like? Two things. First, God's love is transformational. I want you to see in our text uh, that when Paul talks about we were, he's talking about a people who have been transformed by the love of God. For those of us who perhaps have followed the Lord or have been transformed by the love of God for these many years, maybe it's hard to remember what it was like when we first understood and saw the love of God for the first time. But Paul here says that the love of God is transformational. We were sinners while we were ungodly. What I want you to notice from this text is that when Paul is talking about the transformation, his love does not extend to us because we have something to offer. Do you see what I mean? When you go into a room, uh, perhaps some of us have been like this in the past, and it's perfectly natural to be like this. Maybe it's not the greatest thing in the world. But when you go into a room, perhaps you size everybody up in that room, and you start to think about, well, so-and-so is pretty well connected. If I was connected to him, that might help me. Do you see what I mean? Or so-and-so is so nice. I like the way they make me feel when I'm around them, you know? We start to size up our relationships in terms of what the other person could offer to us. Does this make sense? What, what Paul says is that the love of God is transformational while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly. Um, there's a famous set of stories, and if you uh, aren't aware of those, these are fine, but I would recommend that you memorize this location and you refer to these set of stories very often. It's found in Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to tell you these set of stories very briefly. It's a, a section of scripture that is introduced in chapter 15, verse 1 of, of the Gospel of Luke, in which it says that Jesus sat down to teach, and many tax collectors and many sinners had been gathered around Jesus. They wanted to hear what he said. And do you know what else it says? The religious people, the Pharisees, also were there and were muttering amongst themselves, why does he talk to these sinners, right? Why does he talk to these sinners, and Jesus begins to tell a number of stories. He makes them up. They're called parables. And he's got a point behind them. He tells a story first about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And one sheep goes astray. And Jesus goes and, or the good shepherd goes and searches out that sheep. He tells another story about a woman who has ten silver coins. And she loses one of them. And she obsessively cleans her house until she finds that thing that she has lost, you know. Anytime I've lost something and I obsessively clean, I'm always in the utter depths of despair until I find it. And then I act like it was no big deal, putting my whole family through not such a good time. <laughs> That's the good way to put it, yeah? And then third, third, Jesus tells a story about a young man 
who goes to his father and says, I know you're not dead yet, but you're really rich, and if you were dead, I'd have a lot of your money. So could you just give it to me now? And the father does. I've never tried this tactic with my dad. I don't think it would work. Uh, And so he leaves, and he goes off to a far-off country. He wastes all his money on evil pursuit. And he finally decides to come home. And the father's at the end of his driveway looking for him every day, you know. And when the son comes home, he says, Father, I don't deserve to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants because it's better than the life I've been living. And the love of the father just wraps him in his arms, his son, and puts a ring on his finger and a purple robe representing royalty and importance and brings him back into the family. Because the love of God is transformational. The love of God is transformational. It changes us. We do not receive or get God's love because we're kind of awesome but not totally awesome and he makes up the rest. God's love looks down on us and he sees exactly what we are and he extends his love Because he made us and we're his children. And you see this every so often. Uh, I never know how to tell this story, this, this type of illustration without being slightly offensive. But you see this all the time with parents who have children that are wayward. You know, sometimes I use delinquent. Wayward is a little bit better, you know. Kids that cause complexity in their family's life at high levels. And this happens. But most of those parents are good parents, and they don't say, well, you know, my son kind of made things difficult, so forget him. His life would complicate mine, and so I think what I'll do is cut him off and just enjoy my roast beef on Sunday, yeah? No, the the parents are heartbroken. You know, there's like a cliche that goes something, as a parent, you're only as happy as your least happy child, right? Because we understand as a parent the love that the Father has for us. And yet, the love that God extends to us is the love of a good parent to a wayward child. And how do you see yourself? In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, there is incredibly good news. Good news that at the outset may not seem like good news. That while we were still sinners, while we were unlovely, God saw us as his precious child and did anything. Like, you know, the crazy shepherd who seeks out the one. Like the frantic older lady who lost one of her coins. And like that beautiful father who goes to the end of his driveway every day out of the desperate hope that his son might return. Because the love of God is transformational. And love transforms who we are. I've been around people um, before who you, you first meet them. This happened to me not too long ago. I met someone and they were cold and, and put me at a distance. And just love softens and thaws people. Just love itself. That we expect nothing from you. That we don't look down on you. Just you are wanted and you are cared for. 
That's it. It is transformational. But love not only transforms, we not only see that God's love is transformative, and this is something that, as we'll see in a moment, we have the potential to show love in the way that God shows it, not to the level, not to the amount, not in its perfection. But for those of us who've been loved by God, the only natural reaction then would be if we've truly understood the love for which God has loved us, we would love in the way that God has loved us. Yes? That's a lot of words in that sentence. But God's love is also something else that is just incredibly remarkable. And it's actually not in the text here, but we could take you to a number of other texts. God's love is something that our love can never be, and it is infinite. God's love is infinite. I often think of, uh, you know, I love to cook, and so I often think if I was trying to serve a bunch of people food who desperately needed food, you know, it doesn't matter how awesome I was cooking, and it doesn't matter how much I cooked, eventually if the crowd was big enough, the tacos would run out. Eventually, if there was enough people, the soup ladle would hit the bottom of the bowl, and there would be no more soup no matter what I wished was in the, the bowl. Does this make sense? And yet, unimaginably, the love of God has no bounds to it. Love takes something from us. It is such a beautiful word in the, ab- in the abstract, right? And we talk a lot about love. We talk a lot about joy. We talk a lot about peace. We talk a lot about hope this Advent season. But love is something that is like depleting, you know? For the young mom that loves their <laughs> six-week child, that love costs them four to five hours of sleep at night if they're lucky, right? When we love a friend of ours who we've had since childhood who is going through hard times, that love costs us hours on the phone and emotional destability, you know? As we try to, in our stability, give them some of our stability and as they try to substitute some of their instability un- onto us so that we might help them. But But the love of God is not only transformational, but it is infinite. No matter what you've done in your past, you will not tip the scales because of your past where God has no more resources to handle your needs. I may run out of resources emotionally and physically, but God, who is infinite, never will. The love of God reaches out to us and transforms us while we were unlovely. And it reaches out to us in a way that has no bottom to the barrel, right? There's always a little more. There's always more. That's what the love of God is like. And yet, how do we experience that love? And I've been thinking a lot about this this week. There are all kinds of truths in life that we do not experience, There are things that are true, and yet, because of what you may believe, you would never experience that reality. Does this make sense? Uh, I've thought about it in a number of ways this week. Have you ever, you know, when you go to a hotel, one of the cool things about going to the hotel is it doesn't matter how much electricity you use, you can just turn the AC way up, and my wife never lets me. But nevertheless, if I was by myself, I'd make that place like an icebox. But one of the other things that's kind of cool about a hotel, which my wife doesn't let me do very much either, is you can pull the blinds and you can make it like night in there, right? It can be completely dark. 
Like we have blinds at our house, but they, you know, let light in, you know, because light's good. And so, but in a hotel, if you pull that extra set of blinds, you can see nothing. I was thinking about this week. What if you got a person, and, and I'm reading this kind of crazy book too about this, uh, this video game world where this guy lives in his video game reality all week. And so I've been thinking about darkness a little bit. But you could go into that hotel room, and I know this is a weird illustration, so just stick with me. You could go into that hotel room, you could say there's no sun. You could pull the blinds, and you'd live in darkness with fluorescent lighting, believing that the sun doesn't exist. And it might be right behind those curtains that are blackout curtains and you would never experience the reality of the sun because you don't believe it's there and so you do not open the curtains. Does this make sense? There are realities that exist that if you do not accept them and respond to them, you do not get to live in the reality or the, the reality of them. Let me use a different one. Imagine you have a best friend from childhood and you do something terrible to that best friend that breaks their trust. And it's something so horrible that you can just simply not forgive yourself. There's probably many of you that are listening to me right now that have done something in your past that let alone you're not sure if the other person can forgive you, you can't forgive yourself for the thing that you've done. But we'll go back to the friend. Imagine you've done something to your best friend and... uh, (laughs) You cannot forgive yourself. And the friend comes to you day after day and sends you texts and eventually they stop getting in touch with you because you won't, you know, write back or respond. But the friend says, I forgive you and I want to be in relationship with you again. Let's get together, you know, let's play video games. Let's go see the movie, you know, let's be together. And you say to yourself, he couldn't possibly forgive me. It couldn't possibly be the way it was after what I've done. And so you just don't go and spend time with your friend anymore. Do you see what I am saying? He has forgiven you, but you do not experience forgiveness because you will not receive it. The reality of forgiveness is true, but you do not live in the reality of forgiveness. And I am convinced. I am convinced that the vast majority of our world, inside and outside of the church, does not fully understand or live in light of the reality of the love of God, which is real no matter what you believe about it. The reality, you might say, Pastor, how do you know it is real? And I would say to you two things. I know it on the basis of what God has said to us. You know, and and we might think of it very simply. And I know it on the basis of faith. Two things. On the basis of what God says and the basis of faith. But notice that this faith is not just uh, randomly made up. You see, just like that friend who's forgiving you, you have to take them by faith, but what are you basing your faith on? The fact that they told you, I forgive you, and some can accept that forgiveness, and some will not accept that forgiveness. The Bible is full of radical expressions of the love and the forgiveness, which are two very similar concepts, by the way, of God. And I believe that God means what he says. That's it. I believe that he means what he says. Those three stories I told you earlier of the prodigal son, of the lost sheep, and of the lost coin, it is no accident that Jesus tells these stories 
as a huge crowd of people who were sinners and tax collectors. And I'm not, that's what the text calls them. It just says they were sinners. And it is no coincidence that Jesus told those stories to a group of people, and it is no coincidence that religious people who were there were muttering that why is he even spending time with them? How do we receive the love of God? We simply take him at his word. We believe what he has said. One of the most dangerous spiritual lies that you could ever believe in your relationship with God is that you believe that you must be acceptable to be accepted by God. Does this make sense? You believe that you must be lovable to be loved by God. God's love is unconditional. He extends it to you whether you receive it or not. And you can live in reality, the light of its reality, or you can close your blinds in your hotel of darkness and never experience it. We are not loved by God because we are lovable, and we are not accepted by God because we are acceptable. And I don't know anything else that works like this. Do not try this if you're a teenager trying to get a date for prom, right? Then you kind of have to prove you're lovable. But God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we receive the love of God? Paul in the epistle, the the letter of Romans, tells us exactly how. And I'm just going to show you the verses and I'm going to talk to you about it for a second. And if you ever take notes, this is the time to take them. And maybe these verses will be so familiar to you, they're like old friends and maybe they'll be new to you. But here's what Paul seems to describe Here is what he describes about how we receive the love of God. First, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first step to understanding the love of God might be something that sounds like negative news, right? That you are sinners. When he told those three stories in Luke chapter 15, the truth is, the sinners and the tax collectors and the religious people, according to Paul, they were all sinners. They're all in the same boat. But they didn't see themselves that way, did they? See, there is a direct proportion to how you see yourself and how you will respond to the love of God. If you think God loves you because you're lovely, you will think that God doesn't love other people who aren't as lovely as you, however you define that. And yet God does not define things in these terms. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For we are all sinners. Second, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know what this means? What is a wage? It is what we do that we work. We work and we earn a wage, don't we? It is not something that is gifted to us. We go to work. We work 40 hours. We expect to be paid for those hours, right? It's not a gift that our employer gives us. It's a contractual agreement of Uh, exchanging time for money. That's what it is. For the wages of sin is death. And so God says through Paul that what we earn for sinning is death. Eternal separation from God. But, Paul does not say, but if you do really, really good, you might be able to earn your way out of death. He says, but 
The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We receive God's love first by understanding that we're all part of the unlovely crowd, and we second receive God's love by understanding that God has offered every single person on earth a gift, the gift of his Son, and that gift is eternal life. But Paul goes on. In Romans chapter 4, he says this, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation, right? To the one who works, what they receive for their work is not a, a reward from their employers. It's an obligation, right? Imagine with me uh, that you wanted to give a gift to somebody. And you, you'll, you'll hear really easily how offensive this is. Imagine you invite me over for dinner. And uh, at the end of the dinner, I said, you know, this is pretty good. I think this is worth $20. Thank you for having me over for dinner. Here you go. You know, I probably wouldn't get a repeat invite to dinner, would I? Because we understand that this is a, a gift of hospitality. Imagine with me that my little boys on Christmas, Eve, or Christmas morning after they open their gifts, thank you so much, Dad. Here's the money that this costs. I will pay you back. That would cause any parent to faint because where'd they get this money, you know? But you see what I'm saying? Gifts are gifts. We do not earn them through work, through good deeds. They are gifts. Now, to the one who works, wages are credited, not as a, are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Isn't it beautiful? To the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, Their faith is credited as righteousness. Or Paul says it in another way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is faith, but not blind faith, a faith based on what God has said. And once you've received an unconditional kind of love, and until you have received an unconditional kind of love. You cannot extend it well to others. Even as I'm speaking, I would not blame you if you have a hard time believing it because the love of God is hard to believe if you understand it. But once you have, and I pray that the Spirit of God would do so for your life, because once you have, you cannot help but by extending this love to others. There are two ways to extend love to others. One is not so good and one is. You see, some people extend love to others out of a hope to be rewarded. A hope to be rewarded. And this doesn't even not make sense to me. I'm not incredibly harsh as it pertains to this idea because it makes sense. And yet, can you not see how it is selfish? There's different ways. We may, we may help an old lady across the street hoping she gives us some money. Or we may help an old lady across the street hoping God notices us and one day lets us into heaven. Do you see? They're very similar. We may do good hoping God will notice. We may do good hoping someone will notice and will reward us. Do you know what the Bible says to that? That when you get your reward, that will be your reward if that's your motivation. There's another way to extend God's love, 
and it is a no-strings-attached kind of way. Very little things in life have no strings attached, do they? In fact, I get phone calls all the time from like Marriott Hotel where they told me, your name has randomly been selected for a three-day vacation. And you know what I do to those? I hang up every single time. I listened once. I no longer believe that that is true. We can extend the love of God out of a hope to be rewarded. Or we can extend the love of God out of gratitude for what he has already done for us. Can you not see the difference? It may be the same exact action. You can't tell who's extending love out of gratitude and who's extending love out of a hope to be rewarded. But I promise you that you will know the difference. And I pray that you might experience the joy of knowing, of receiving, and extending the love of God. And as we move to communion this morning, and as we, as we receive the wafer that represents the broken body of Christ, and as we receive from the cup that represents his shed blood, I pray that you might take this time to meditate on the love that God has extended to each and every one of us. And I pray that you might even ask God in the most simple and honest prayer that can be prayed, God, help me to see your love and be transformed by it. God, help me to see your love and to extend it to others. And as you have this time, as you come forward and as you receive, and as you receive and you are nourished in a spiritual way, because you're not really going to get too many calories and nutrients from this, as you're nourished in a spiritual way from the reception and the activity, the action of coming forward and receiving from the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that these tangible and physical symbols might become more than that in your hearts and minds. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we might see the love of God for all of its infinite and transformative power. Help us to be soft, humble-hearted people that extend the love of God to others no matter what. And help us uh, to be renewed by seeing the love of God over and over again so that, we might, so that we might be energized to share it and able to do so. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. At this time, I want to invite you to come forward. Uh, please come.